Welcome to Parallel, the tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. This is episode 23 for August 13th, 2019. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. It's great to have you here. We have one more special episode featuring content from my documentary, 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk. Two weeks from now, we will be back to normal content. But for today, I have an interview with somebody I talked to for that documentary. But before we get to the bonus content for the documentary, we need to talk about something very important, and that is membership in Relay FM, the very network of which Parallel is a part, and something that's really important to me as a creator, and I hope it's important to you as a listener. Something you might not know, even if you are a Relay member, is that your membership dollars directly help those of us who host shows on Relay, and particularly those of us who don't yet have sponsors for our show. Those membership dollars provide some encouragement and a source of income while we're doing the shows that we're doing. So when I see those memberships go up, I know that you're out there and that you're enjoying Relay and that you're contributing to the success of this show and the whole Relay FM network. August is Membership Month here at Relay FM. It's where we let you know about all the great benefits of joining the network. For as little as $5 a month, you get some great benefits, including a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter, 5K wallpapers of Relay FM show art, as well as a monthly interview show with Relay FM hosts. And an extra special benefit is a feed full of members-only shows in August and September where Relay hosts do something a little bit different than their normal show. Coming up on August 25th, I've got a members-only show which features a movie review. It's the movie Desk Set from 1957, which has a giant computer in it and also some people who kind of like each other. But I sit down with my husband, Frank, who was a co-host of Shelley's podcast back in the day. So if any of you followed me over from the old Shelley's podcast days and you miss Frank and wonder what he's been up to, uh, well, he's here to talk about Desk Set. So if you join right now, you'll be able to get that show when it comes out on August 25th. And if you don't join, you won't. Show your support for Parallel and all of Relay FM by heading over to relay.fm slash parallel. Sign up for membership starting at just five bucks a month and get all those great benefits. The bonus show, the newsletter, the wallpapers, and the feed of members-only shows in August and September. I'd really appreciate it, as would all of Relay FM. All right, now let's listen to the final interview from my 36 Seconds to Changed Everything documentary. There were so many to choose from, and I want to, first of all, thank all the people I talked to for the documentary. I credit them at the end, and uh, they include Matt Gemmel, Jonathan Mosen, and Marco Arment, who you've already heard from, and Steve Sazen, who you're about to hear from, also Josh DeLancourt, and Kara Quinn, and Darcy Bernard, and Holly Anderson, and James Dempsey, and David Pogue, and just a ton of people that uh, gave of their time and their recollections and who I think felt weird saying, I remember, or sort of going back 10 years. We live in a very non-nostalgic time, and there's also a way in which this content, remembering back when something changed for the better in your life, but it was a technical thing, a, a, a thing that affected your productivity, I, I think that's I think it's weird for people to remember, and I think people would just as soon get on with their lives sometimes and not remember, you know, back before a thing changed. But in any case, uh, people did give me their memories. And Steve's is the f well, first interview I conducted for this project. So I want to thank Steve for being my guinea pig, most of all, but also for having uh, great things to say. Listen to the end, because a lot of the really interesting stuff that Steve has to say comes 
in the middle and at the end. And as you'll hear me break in to say a little bit later, there's kind of an after show, a point where I said, okay, Steve, bye, thanks. And then we kept talking. And there's some great stuff in there too. So listen to the end and enjoy. And in two weeks, I'll be back with another episode that has nothing to do with iOS accessibility. So I guess I would start with... What were you doing in 2009? Who, which is when VoiceOver came to iOS? Who, who were you? Had you used Macs before? Were you, were you mining your own business as a PC user? What kind of work were you doing? That kind of stuff. Uh, my history with VoiceOver is kind of an interesting, unplanned one. Um, back in the early, to mid-2000s, the state of Maine had a initiative where they wanted to equip all middle school students, all 7th and 8th graders, with some form of laptop for this uh, wireless education initiative thing. They called it the Main Learning and Technology Initiative. And one of the organizations that were that was bidding to provide this equipment was Apple. And I opposed it because at the time there was no voiceover and I didn't want blind kids to be shut out of something that could really create a uh, an equal experience and and create a level of equality that, you know, blind kids at that point didn't really have with their sighted peers. And so I literally protested against it and argued against it, spoke to legislatures, begged them not to approve Apple, and was all anti-Apple. And um, Apple had reached out and was trying to understand, you know, why there was such vehement objections. And we had this conversation and um, basically had explained that, you know, their platform wasn't very accessible without third-party software, uh, outspoken was a thing at the time. And um, they said, well, what if we were developing something that would make it accessible? And I said, well, in, in the realm of hypothetical, if you were doing that sort of thing, then theoretically, hypothetically, uh, I think it'd be great because then we would have a solution that blind kids could use and um, it would be wonderful. And they said, well, they, they introduced me to a thing they were developing, which became voiceover. At the time, it had some other name and I forget even what it was, um, but they allowed me to start playing with it and other folks as well. Um, and certainly they didn't create voiceover because of the main learning and technology initiative. I think they were getting pressure from lots of other directions as well, other school districts and other, you know, Apple users. And, um, you know, so it all sort of culminated in this thing that eventually became voiceover. And I really liked it. I used it. I beta tested it. It was fun, but I really didn't immerse myself in it. I was a PC user, and so I didn't really immerse myself in, uh, in in voiceover until one day I came into my home office and I could smell something burning. And what had melted was my laptop. My PC laptop was plugged in, and um, it something bad had happened, and it had melted and shorted out, and it was a big mess. And I didn't have a laptop, and I was recently self-employed and didn't have much in the way of income, and I didn't know what to do. And after I panicked for a little while, I thought, you know, I've got this iBook. I think that's, yeah, they were iBooks back then, and I am only playing with it. I really ought to just use it since I have it here. And so out of necessity, I started doing everything with the Mac, using VoiceOver, and sort of immersed myself in it. Tiger was the thing that uh, was out by then. And so I was using 10.4 and um, loving the fact that voiceover was built in, that I could start it by myself, that without sighted assistance, I could reinstall the operating system, that I had a lot of control um, that I never at that point really had on the PC. And 
fell in love with it. And when Leopard came out on release day, I bought myself my first MacBook. They were Intel-based then, and I um, waited in line. It was the first and only time I've kind of been a, a line waiter, um, you know, where I've, I just was so proud of what Apple had done, I had to get it. On the iPhone, though, I felt left out again because Apple had released this really shiny, cool new iPhone thing, and it looked really cool, and it had the ability to combine two devices, my phone and my iPod, in one thing. I was using a Nokia phone at the time, and I really wanted this idea of a device that could do both music listening, and which I do with my iPod, and um, the stuff I was doing with my Nokia and couldn't do it. And then in 2009... I think it was 2009 when they came out with the 3GS, I was super jazzed about it. I was so excited that voiceover was available on a device out of the box and that I could buy a thing and use voiceover and not have to have someone assist me with the installation of some third-party software and spend tons of extra money buying third-party software. Um, I went to the AT&T store and I bought myself an iPhone and I got home and I stayed up all night um, waiting for it to charge and uh, reading through the manual and just getting all jazzed about this. And I was so mesmerized that this thing would work and I could use what many folks thought would be very inaccessible because it's just flat glass. And that I was able to do this at the same time as other people uh, also were buying their phones. I didn't have to wait for a new version of the software to come out or an update to be made or someone cited to help me. I could just go to the AT&T store, buy my device, go home, plug it in and with iTunes I could start up voiceover and the thing just worked great. So um, that kind of got me on the voiceover path and I've been amazed with it ever since. So let me back you up a little bit. So when you started advocating against Apple coming to the main schools, were you working in accessibility at the time or was this just a passionate interest of yours because you had been that blind kid once and had cared about accessibility or, or what, what motivated you at that time? A little of both. Um, I was working in accessibility, but honestly, my, my objections were really more because of my own history. I, I was that blind kid, and I saw this as a really cool opportunity because when I was growing up, you know, I did a lot of my work in Braille, and everyone else did theirs, you know, in print. And then when, when the other kids were using computer stuff, I was using my specialized computer. I had a, a, a Keynote, uh, which was a device that was made way back when, sort of a specialized device, and then a um, a Braille and Speak, which is another specialized device. I had lots of devices um, and, and technology support, but it wasn't easy to integrate that with what other kids were doing. And so I was sort of always off by myself uh, in my own little corner, literally and figuratively, and I always felt really, really excluded. And so when I heard about this whole, let's get every kid a laptop thing, I thought this is a great opportunity if we find the right equipment, then you know blind kids don't have to use their specialized thing. They can use what everyone else is using. And so really it was just kind of thinking about my own childhood and how I felt. And I thought, you know, we're, we're at a place now that kids don't need to feel that way anymore, not, you know, not for technology reasons. And we've got to push this. Otherwise, whoever's the lowest bidder is going to win this. And Apple really, really, really wanted to win this and get the PR. And so they had put in a, an extremely low bid per unit on these on these devices, understandably. And so um, as soon as I heard about that, I was I was infuriated that they would do this thing and possibly uh, a technology initiative that could create equality could create a, an even greater degree of inequality. 
So when the iPhone came out in 2007, there was like this, they released it, there was a, there was a, they announced it, Steve Jobs made a big speech, and then six months later they came out and people got in line. Were you thinking about the degree to which you were left out at that point, or did you, were you just resigned to it, or did you think that eventually they would, would fix it? What was your thoughts about the initial iPhone? Uh, the initial iPhone... I, w- I felt left out. Um, there were other touchscreen, accessible touchscreen solutions at the time. Um, there was a company called uh, Code Factory, which made a product called MobileSpeak that worked on Windows mobile phones. Um, and I believe there was another program made by Dolphin Systems that also created um, a, a touchscreen-based um, system that also worked with Windows mobile devices. And so the idea that touchscreens could be made accessible was kind of in the back of my head, but no one had really done it well. A lot of the stuff, even with those two products, was uh, a a set of specialized applications that worked on a touchscreen device, but they really didn't provide native access to the applications on the device. You had some accessibility for native things, but mostly they, they provided a suite of applications that ran on those devices, but you had to work within the self-contained suite. So the idea of, of accessible touchscreens someday being a reality, that was in my mind. But the idea of an accessible touchscreen experience that would allow someone to use the native apps on the device and, and third-party apps, that was totally foreign. And at the time, the whole concept of third-party apps was a, a little foreign. And you know, the whole App Store thing was kind of a new concept, and um, at, at least to me. And so... I was sad because I felt, oh, here's another time we're going to be left out, and eventually someone's going to come along and make a special blindness-specific eye device. It'll be three versions old. It'll cost four times as much, and we'll just keep buying it because it's the only option that we have. So I felt, um, I felt frustrated and sad, but sort of resigned because that's kind of the way it's been, which is negative. But you know, I had experienced that with a lot of technologies like the Mac when it first came out and PC when it first came out and other technologies, you know, I've, I felt very much like an afterthought. So when everyone else was lining up and being excited, um, you know, I figured, well, this is just another round of that. So in 2009, in June at the developers conference, they announced the 3GS and accessibility. Did you have a hint that that was coming? Was it a total surprise? Where were you at at that point? It was a total shock to me. I, I did not know um, or believe that it was coming. I mean, you know, people had rumored Apple's doing some magic thing. Apple's going to make this accessible. Apple's going to come through. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, there was also all kinds of rumors, just like there is with every iPhone release that, you know, oh, this time it's going to do this, that, and the other thing. You know, it's going to do this. It's going to make coffee. It's going to serve as a hoverboard. You could do everything with it, you know. And so I just sort of was hopeful but not optimistic. I figured, you know, if if they actually do it, maybe it'll give us access to like just the phone app or, you know, some really really basic functionality that, you know, would make it, you know, useful but not worth it. Um, you know, I did not expect much more than possible accessibility to the phone app. Um, and and you know, some sort of statement that, you know, they might be releasing special accessible blindness specific apps that, you know, you could buy in some sort of special package um, for this device. But that's that was probably the height of my hopes, not even expectations, but maybe hopes at the time. So in looking into this, I found the 
keynote speech from WWDC where it was announced. And just in case you don't remember, a couple of interesting things. So at the very end, they're presenting, they presented the iPhone 3GS, they're presenting iPhone 3.0 software. And there's a point about one hour and 54 minutes in where Phil Schiller says, and great accessibility. And he talks about it for 36 seconds. I mean, do you have any memory of sort of how you processed, oh, this is the thing that's going to take me to the store to go and get that phone, you know, right now as soon as I can? Yeah, I, I remember exactly what I thought. Um, first off, it was so far in, and, and, and my my immediate thought was, this is just total BS. Um, you know, this is something that's going to be, um, you know, for PR sake, you know, maybe they're going to put some functionality in here. But he, he didn't describe it that well. And I, I mean, to be fair, he didn't have a lot of time to really describe something as in-depth and detailed as as assistive technology is, right? But listening to it, it was like, oh, yay, we got, you know, what was it, a minute and whatever it was, or two minutes between, like you said. 36 seconds. Oh, 36 yes. seconds, right? Yes. We got a 36-second spot in a, in a rather lengthy keynote between two other apps that are, are well, I guess they're not both third-party, but, you know, yay, that's <laughs> that shows dedication right there, right? And, and so I was very... I mean, I called total BS. I'm like, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but it doesn't even rate a minute of explanation, and it's buried in the keynote, and it's it's you know right next to a third party partnership thing that they're obviously way more excited about. And I wasn't angry about it, but I thought, you know, this is just some sort of PR nonsense, just like you know, um, a, a lot of companies that that have inaccessible things that have a statement that say, you know, we we really care and value and. Uh, you know, cherish accessibility and blah blah. But you know, their their site is totally inaccessible, or their experience is inaccessible. But they they have that nice language there. So I figured, you know, Phil was just you know giving us a few seconds of something that would be really awesome, and people would be like, oh, that's so nice that Apple's doing that for those people, you know. And uh, I just shrugged it off and was like, whatever. People will enjoy the Nike app at least. <laughs> I'm really terribly negative, and I. I feel bad about that, and I'm not that way as much anymore, for sure, because things have really changed. But back then, you know, there was a, a lot of, of successes, but a lot of disappointments, a lot of waiting, a lot of coming in, you know, second or third, a lot of broken promises, a lot of things from technology companies and software developers. And so, you know, it, it was a very different time that um, I think – is a source of why I was so very jaded about this stuff. You know, Microsoft had broken promises and, 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 and lots of companies had, had broken promises, or at least that's how it appeared to, to me and many others at the time. And so, you know, why would Apple be any different because of a 30 second blurb? You know, I just didn't buy it. So what was the pivot then? How did you figure out, Oh wait, something's different here. Was it just talking to people or did you just take a leap or what happened? I think talking to people and there was documentation um, that was released and I, I didn't get the, the 3GS on day one, um, but I, you know, I, I saw lots of people talking about it and I saw the documentation that talked about how to use voiceover and I'm like, wait a minute, they're, they're talking about how to use apps in this. They're talking about how to access the keyboard. They're talking about, you know, how to do more than what I had thought they were going to do, which is just the phone app. You know, that was like the phone app was a, a section within a far greater 
thing. And and they also talked about, you know, here's how you could enable it yourself with iTunes. There was a checkbox and stuff. And so you could, you know, you could enable it directly on the device in, in 3.0. You could turn it on independently. And I thought, wow, they are really doing something incredible and amazing. And by the way, it's free. And that meant I had to go at least look at the thing. And I did, and then that meant I had to at least buy the thing, <laughs> so I did that too. And so, um, I, you know, I was I was amazed. So you're like every other Apple fan, and that, that there's like this incrementalism. You I'll just look. Oh wait, that's awesome. I think I'll buy one. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, it was cool. And then and then when you got it, I guess what was the most amazing, awesome? Like, what what did you really dig into and think this is this is terrific? I think I really loved the fact that I had a device that other people had or were trying to get. It, it wasn't this Nokia. See, before the iPhone, I had a Nokia device. And certainly people had Nokias, but not as much. I didn't know as many in, in my circle that had the, the model Nokia that I had. A lot of folks had uh, LG phones and, and flip phones and other, um, you know, Motorola had made a, a phone that was really popular and and. Not many people had the Nokia Symbian devices. A lot of blind folks I knew did, but not a lot of sighted folks, not a lot of people I either worked with or uh, were friends was friends with. And so what I was really jazzed about was I had a device that other people had. It wasn't a special thing, and it wasn't some unique thing I had to mail order from somewhere or other. It was, it was a device I could actually go to the store and buy and and use and it was the same device that other people were excited to go out and buy and use and carry around and and it you know that was for me the the real exciting part and then there was the excitement around the device itself i mean it was a you know a device without um well i guess it had some buttons on it right but not for the you know it was a touchscreen device this whole idea of a phone without a keypad just seemed like such a novel approach and i know there was the windows phone but this seemed this seemed very different somehow, and um, you know, it it could have music on it and take the place of multiple devices, and those sorts of things just really seemed exciting. But I could get excited about them just like everyone else was getting excited about those same things, and that was that was really really cool. It was really cool to to stand in line and buy an iPhone with other people who were standing in line buying iPhones. Did you dig into third party apps? Were you excited about that, or were you mostly making fo- banking phone calls and using Safari and email and that sort of thing. I bought every app I could find. I I mean I I went away that weekend and we were visiting friends and I think I was a, a very rude uh, house guest because I was on my new iPhone the entire time. I mean I was I was trying to buy apps. I was looking for apps. I was you know and, and a lot of them were ninety nine cents. A lot of them are free and I'm like it's only 99 cents. It's only, you know, it's free. It's it's 99 cents. I bought tons of apps. I went through my data. I had to call AT&T and upgrade my data plan. I I was addicted to finding apps and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them worked. Um and I just loved that there was so much possibility. And you know, at the time it was um a little frustrating because if you bought an app that wasn't accessible, you couldn't get a refund at least i don't think you, maybe if you could have it wasn't an easy process but i thought you know for every one app that works even if five don't 
it's six dollars you know it's not a big deal for for something that's accessibility and provides some functionality that can help me in my life or or be fun you know it could be a source of enjoyment you know i mean i'll spend that much getting coffee so i didn't even worry when apps didn't work i just i just kept on going looking for the the nuggets of awesome and um found quite a lot of them so how did you experience that having gotten the iphone and been beyond happy with it how did that make you feel when apple you know continued announcing new products and moving forward was was some of your jadedness gone or were you still mistrustful or had you kind of you know signed into the cult by then or no well for for the longest time i i you know it's such an interesting transformation because you don't realize it's happening to you so at first i would hold my breath during the keynotes and I was fully expecting them to say, Oh, we've decided to discontinue this voiceover thing, or, or we're not going to put that on this new model device, or, um, we're going to add this later into iOS four or five or whatever. So for a while, I just sort of hoped beyond hope that they wouldn't discontinue it, that they wouldn't, um, you know, be done with this little project of theirs. And, and it really took me a long time to accept that this wasn't some little, project that this was actually something they believe and something that's core to what they do and that they they value this in a way that I, I never fully comprehended. And I didn't realize that my thought process had shifted until there was some iOS update. And I, w- I want to say it was like seven or eight and something didn't work. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the specifics, but everyone seem to be whining about this on Twitter. Oh, Apple has forsaken us. And I remember that because <laughs> you don't see the word forsaken used often in English anymore. And I thought, they've forsaken us? Like, what does this mean? Like, there's there's something that's broken, but there's 10 more things that work great. Like, is it perfect? No. But these people are complaining about this from their iPhones, you know, which are fully accessible. And, and is it ideal? No, could it be better? Sure, but is it forsaken or abandonment or any of this sort of horrible stuff? No, not at all. It's just something that you know it was unfortunate, but hardly the the uh, end of an era. And I just I realized, wow, you know, I'm I'm defending Apple. I've I've gone from a a staunch opponent to Apple and all things Apple to someone who's defending Apple, embracing Apple promoting Apple and loving Apple. And you stuck with the iPhone for a while. You've you've I think you've moved back and forth, right, a few times with with phones? I've moved back and forth a few times. Uh, I've actually I'm back with the iPhone. Um I I every every couple of years I get the the bug to try Android again and go over to Android and I do this for a couple of reasons. One because um you know, iPhones are very expensive and the reality is that with an 80% or so unemployment rate, um, the price tag for an iPhone is uh, out of out of range for a lot of folks who are living on a very, very limited budget. And I really believe in accessibility. I, I see the tremendous impact smart devices have had on society and, and on us as a culture. And iPhones, unfortunately, are just out of reach for many people. And so Android, because there's so many options available, um, has the potential to offer devices at a much lower price point and at a much more affordable price point for a lot of folks. And it's, 
you know, it's had its own accessibility journey. And it's hard to say, you know, that one is necessarily better than another because it really depends on what you do and what your your workflow is and what you need um, to get out of your device. But it's also very hard to really understand the other operating system, whichever it is, if you're not using that other operating system. Um, just like when I was playing with the Mac, the, the I, iBook, you know, I didn't fully appreciate and understand it until I had to use it. And so every so often I'll get an Android device and I'll get frustrated for a couple of weeks while I figure everything out. And then I really try to immerse myself into it just to understand it, to understand where that accessibility journey is, is headed and where they are. Um, I've come back to, to iOS every time, although I suppose, you know, since I do this pretty often and stick with the other devices for, you know, at least at least six months, if not longer, you know, I keep going back to Android too. And, and both um, platforms have definitely evolved, but, um, you know, iOS, it just, it's just smoother than, than what the Android experience is. Android is certainly usable. It's certainly doable. Um, I could do everything on my Android device that I do on iOS. Um, it's just, it's more tightly integrated on, on iOS. And I think that in the end is what keeps driving me back. You talked a little bit about assistive technology devices that you had before you used the iPhone and, and answer this either personally or just from what you know of the industry and how other blind people use tools. But there is the, and I say this a lot to people too, there's the perception out there that the iPhone has replaced the need for those assistive technologies in many people's device life. And as we know, those, those devices are often quite expensive because they're so uh, low volume. But have you, was that experience you had? And if so, what kinds of devices do you think the iPhone made go away from that did for either for you or for people that you know about? I don't know. I, you know, I think there still is a niche for, um, specialized devices. I think there are some situations in which um, specialized devices still have the edge over over an iPhone. Um, the iPhone does fill that need for a lot of people. But the thing we have to remember is that, you know, each person is doing something different or using, needing something different. And so um, the, the Braille and Speak is a device that I still miss. Um, the nice thing about a Braille and Speak was you know, you could turn it on and immediately start writing. And so if you, uh, you know, if you had a note file open, and so it was a very handy thing that I would use in the same way that many people will use a pencil, just, you know, pick it up, start writing on something, you know, back of a napkin or something, whatever. It was great to grab the Braille and speak, turn it on and do that. And I can't do that with my iPhone. At, at the very least, I have to unlock the thing, right? Which which doesn't take time, but it does if you are, are needing to write something quickly. Uh, and then I have to find my app. And yes, I can use Siri or whatever, but I still got to find my app. I got to get into it, um, you know. And then I can write my thing if I'm using a Bluetooth keyboard. I got to turn that on, um, you know. So so it's not as convenient as just flip a switch and within two seconds you can start writing. Um, and so there are times I miss things like the Braille and Speak or devices where, since they're designed with accessibility in mind. Um, you know, you have full accessibility to all of the apps on the device, or you have integrated Braille output, which of course doesn't exist on the iPhone either. Um, so there's there's places and, and situations where specialized devices are still fantastic. Um, that said, you know, you can do a lot of the same things, and in a way that's adequate for 
most people um, with with the iPhone or an iThing, I'll say, because you know iPad would fit into this as well. And um, I don't use uh, a Braille Note or any sort of um, you know specialized device. Most of the work that I do. Uh, personally and professionally, I'm doing with the iPhone. There's there's times I wish I could do things a little bit quicker, but for the most part, the iPhone meets my needs, and I use it for, you know, for for reading, for reading books, for note taking, for all of those things. In addition to you know all the fun stuff that you can do with an iPhone. So it's 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 bridged that gap for me, but I think there still is a uh, a, a definite need for some of these other devices for, um, you know, the the way that other people tend to work and, uh, you know, tend to, to need to process information. So I have to ask you about this because when I talked to Darcy and Holly and Josh a little bit about, you know, the, the iPhone release day and all that, they bring up how much else was going on in the community at that time. And they mentioned the infamous uh, NFB review of voiceover on the Mac and how that happened right about that time. And then later your uh, response to that, or I don't know if you call it a, a counter review or whatever, but I found that in my research. I'd totally forgotten about that. I had too. So I, awesome. I would love to know like how either just all of that drama played into what you were doing and how you ended up writing that. If you want to talk about what that article was, but how you ended up writing that article, which was in what October of 2009. Gosh, that was a long time. We did a marathon podcast too back then. I think it was like three, three or four hours. It, it probably got edited. I hope it got edited shorter than that. But we did go on a while. That's for sure. Um, there was an article published in NFB's newsletter. Uh, the National Federation of the Blind publishes a, a newsletter called the Braille Monitor, and in the Braille Monitor was published a review, a very unflattering review of Voiceover and. It had a lot of uh, factual errors and a lot of uh, misconceptions and a lot of a lot of stuff that wasn't correct. And it really upset a lot of people, myself included, simply because it wasn't accurate. Um, I wasn't at that point necessarily advocating that voiceover was the best solution out there. But it was a viable solution out there, and it was a solution that was working just fine for me, which isn't to say it was going to work well for everyone, but it certainly was was a viable solution, and the uh, Braille Monitor article did not do it justice. And I was really upset about that, and I spoke up um, in a number of different forums and reached out to NFB. Uh, I'm a a member, and I was um, upset about this, and the response I got was, well, if you disagree with it um, and don't like it, why don't you write uh, a rebuttal to it? And, you know, I thought, well, I will. And I did. And I I really appreciated uh, a couple of things. First, that they published it. Um, I, I, was, I felt very honored that they did. And the second thing it showed me is, you know, it's, it's easy to complain about stuff, but you can also be part of the solution, not just the problem. And, and you know, I had never really thought ever of, of writing a rebuttal. I was just upset. And it was easy for me to, to complain and to call people and fuss about it. And when, when the suggestion was made, hey, why don't you, you know, do something about this? I mean, they said it much nicer than that. But it's essentially what it was. And I thought, you know, I could do that. And I didn't think about that. And so I did. And I I went through and tried to, as respectfully as possible, address the original article um, point by point, and um, 
uh, went through and tried to set the record straight, and they published my article in the next edition, which was, um, like I say, really fantastic. Um, I, I felt really bad for the original author of the the author of the original article. Um, I you know consider him a friend, and I didn't want to come across as as attacking him or tearing him down. And a lot of the commentary at the time was unfortunately sort of directed to him. And, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about and he did this and he did that. And I felt that was very uh, unfair that, you know, articles um, when they're written, you know, get edited. They, there's, there's a lot of things that kind of go into it. And I felt that, you know, what I really wanted to do was focus on voiceover and what it could do and what it couldn't do and not, you know, the original author and I felt really bad for, for him that he was in that position and, and bad because, um, you know, I, I didn't want to come across as me attacking him or, uh, him versus me sort of scenario. Cause it wasn't about that at all. And, um, fortunately we still, we still talk. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's good. good. To know. So, but so, so this is all happening with the backdrop of, iPhone has just gotten voiceover, and I think the reviews in the blind community that summer, when people were getting it in their hands, were good. And and perhaps it's even true that there were more blind people using voiceover on iPhones than than Mac users, even at that early stage. I can't prove that, but my theory is that an awful lot of people who never had a Mac went out and got phones. So, I mean, does that did you do you feel like the tide was changing? toward Apple in the community of people that were skeptical of voiceover once the iPhone had been released, or was it too early for that to be true? Or do you even remember? Because that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it, it was interesting because, yeah, I think the, the iPhones caught on before the Mac really did. Um, and I think in part, the you know, I mentioned earlier the whole um, uh, barrier, you know, financial barrier, the, the barrier to entry for a lot of this stuff. And, you know, the reality is you could you could go to AT&T and you could get an iPhone uh, with a two-year plan and the cost of that was was built into your plan. And you couldn't do that with a Mac. You had to have the money. And if you didn't have the money, you weren't getting a Mac. Um, the iPhone plan through AT&T, though, uh, again, wasn't affordable to, to everyone for sure. But it was affordable to a lot of folks for whom a Mac was still way out of range. And, and unless they had the money, they couldn't do the Mac thing. And... The other thing was that, you know, a lot of people in professional settings, uh, you know, a lot of offices and such are PC-based, not Mac-based. And so there's this idea that, well, you know, I'm going to have to learn one system for home and another system for work. And with the iPhone, though, that's just my personal device. So, I, I, you know, I'm just replacing my uh, my Nokia phone or whatever with that. I'm not, you know, changing my whole, you know, the way I use computers, you know. And so I think... Um, with the with the iPhone, it was something that people were more drawn to because it was it was more affordable. Um, it was a device that you could use supplementally with a PC or you know whatever um, you know, and um, it was cool. You know, everyone was getting one, and so I think that really made it made it very attractive. I think the the coolness factor around the iPhone is probably greater than the the coolness factor of the you know. Uh, MacBook at the time. Sure, that makes sense. I, I guess when I have put together, when I've been putting together this thing and I've been trying to think about the timeline and even how I'm going to construct what I'm writing, one thing I always come up against is there's this moment when 
iPhone 3GS and iPhone 3.0 come out and voiceover exists where it didn't before. And then I'm always left with, well, what should I say after? Obviously, voiceover has evolved, as have all the accessibility features. But I guess I'm wondering, were there other uh, great moments or other things in the course of the past 10 years about accessibility that, at Apple that you feel like people should know about? Yeah, I remember, and I don't remember the timing on this either, it, when iTunes became accessible on the Mac. Uh, when when VoiceOver came out on the Mac, initially iTunes was not very accessible. And that was very frustrating because, you know, iTunes was like Apple's go-to thing for playing audio. And those of us who had VoiceOver in the early days couldn't really use iTunes. And I remember when they, they magically made it accessible with an update and um, the store was accessible. And I was so thrilled by that that I went out and bought an album. Um, in fact, I think it was a Metallica album. Um, and it had just been released. And I remember being so excited because um, not only could I independently go and buy this album, um, but the booklet that would accompany the album was an inaccessible PDF. So I could actually read the little book that came with the album at the time. And I thought, that's so cool. Not only is the experience of buying this accessible, but the little booklet thing, which most people threw away, was also accessible. Like, they didn't cut corners. They went all in on this. The whole darn thing was accessible. And um, it was the first time I had actually purchased music uh, online. For me as a low vision person, iOS 7 was hard. I didn't feel like we had been forsaken, but I did feel like they had made a step backwards and it was sort of startling. And so I, I don't know if, if there were any experiences like that or the opposite that you can think of. Yeah, iOS 7 is really, you know, it's it's one of these, you know, two steps forward, one step back things. I, I think they're, you know, generally the progression has been really good. And then you have a setback like iOS 7. And then they do something really cool like make the map accessible. And I confess I don't know how to use them well, I get confused with it, but it's not due to accessibility. I think it's due to me. Um, I was, uh, you know, these iPhones have always had, you know, maps and you could use it for navigation, but the maps have always been inaccessible. And Apple found a way that you could make the map accessible. And if you zoomed in, you could sort of explore around the map and they had these cool little sounds. So you could like simulate walking along a road or driving along a road and could see, through touch, you know, how the roads curved and things like that. And I, I thought that was just absolutely incredible. I I wish I, I mean, I just have to dig in and play with it more. But I, I, you know, the fact that that was accessible made me really think for the first time that screen size would matter. I mean, being blind, I've always not cared about the size of the screen. Uh, in fact, the more portable, the better. And so for the first time, I thought, you know, I actually want a bigger device so I could have more space so I could look at things like maps or maybe, you know, explore by touch and look at other programs and kind of build a mental picture of of how these things actually look. And so on the one hand, you have sort of the magic of having accessible maps. Um, but on the other hand, you have this sort of switch from yeah, any screen will do. I don't care. To you know, I actually do care about the display because um, size actually might matter, even if you can't see it. Because now we can, we can feel it. 
That makes sense. Yeah, I, I was annoyed when I found out I wanted a big screen too. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's frustrating. It's like, wait a minute, you've you've brought me into this cult. Now I have to spend more money. So, and I know, right? Right. I, you know, is, iPad, is, same thing. Did you ever get in the iPad? I did. Um, yeah. I've I've had I've had on and off again relationships with the iPad. I got one, and I decided I didn't like it. I got another one and decided I liked it more. Um, I liked the, the, the fact that the battery power was, was incredible. Um, I had it in a Bluetooth keyboard case thing and thought that was absolutely amazing. I basically used that as an, as a note taker. We were talking earlier about, you know, specialized devices and whatnot. I kind of used my iPad as a, as a, uh, for work, you know, an, a note taker thing. And I liked the fact that it, um, you know, it didn't drain as fast as my iPhone battery did at the time. Um, and you know, it, it's, it solved the problem of iPhone is great, but has like not enough battery power unless you use a battery pack, which is another thing to carry, you know, iPad solved that problem for me, but I really didn't care so much about the screen. Um, and, um, then I got, when Apple introduced split screen, um, I thought that was incredible because I could run two apps at the same time. Uh, which you know you could always do on Windows and whatnot, but you couldn't like quickly jump between them as fast as you could just by simply touching the other side of the screen. And so this idea of being able to run apps in split view was phenomenal because I could have like my note-taking app on one side and my email or a chat app or something on the other side, and um, you know be be more productive. Okay, maybe not with the chat app, but you know um, <laughs> with with some other app, my email and my calendar might be a better example for, for, for productivity. Sure, you say but, what you need to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'll stand by it. Sure, you know, gotta but, stay awake in meetings somehow. But, um, but it's kind of like you were saying before that you you can make those decisions and, and judgments based not on special needs based on accessibility, but everybody's going to make that decision about battery life. Everybody's going to care about portability and you get to make the decisions on something because, because the accessibility is a given, right? You, you just get to say, I, I would like this because it has a bigger battery in it. Exactly. I, I could choose it for my reasons and, and I didn't choose it because it's the only thing that's available or, you know, it's the only thing in this catalog or it's the only thing VR will buy me, um, which unfortunately is, is the reason oftentimes that people get what they've got and you know i could decide on my terms you know this this matters to me or this doesn't and you know that was i think is very empowering you know maybe people don't care about the split screen thing and they're like well i don't need to do that that's totally fine you don't need to right you're not stuck with a device that you don't need where that might be overkill uh, for what you're doing because it's the only device available or you know if you do need that I mean, you've got a number of options to choose, and you have Bluetooth keyboards, and you have the the smart keyboard cover, which is uh, phenomenal and awesome. Or you have, you know, I, I mean, tons of accessories. I mean, there's there's lots of things you can do with the iPad that um, can fit the way that you work or play, or you know, can can generally just fit your lifestyle, which is incredibly cool. Hey there, Shelly here, jumping in. So you've been listening to my conversation with Steve Sazen, and we were about to wrap it up. 
And I said, thank you. And I said, is there anything else? And I said, make sure I have the spelling of your name and your URL and all that stuff, right? And then we just kept talking. And a thing I learned when I became a radio journalist is that this happens a lot. You will be conducting an interview and you'll finish it up. And all of a sudden, the guest will say really good stuff. And it's a good thing that you are continuing to record. So what you're about to hear is essentially the the after show with Steve Sazen. And um, I think it's pretty great. So uh, keep listening, will you? It, it still amazes people when, you know, I take out my iPhone and they're like, how are you doing that? Because, right. you know, there's no buttons on that. And, I mean, people just are are amazed that this works, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think there's this total wow factor of, wow, you're, you're using the same device that I'm using, you know, kind of. And, and you know, I've had Uber drivers that, are, that have said, you know, wow, that's that's the same phone that I have. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is. Like we're we're using the same thing. It's not a special blindy thing. It's a it's it's the same phone that you have up there, you know. And and then I worry that he's looking at me and not the road. But you know, <laughs> turn back, dude, because because you can tell him where he's going, but not good yeah, enough for him to see. Not you? good <laughs> enough, exactly. But you know, there's this like connection, like you know, wow, that's that's I can relate to this device because I'm using this, and you know. Um, Weirdly enough, it it's it happens in with Uber a lot, Uber and Lyft. I think in part because I'm usually playing with my phone, you know, in the cars, doing something or other. And plus, I think they wonder, wait a minute, I just picked this guy up. How did he call me? Like he would have had to use an app to do that. How does he do that being blind? Like there's this light bulb I think that sometimes goes on in their heads of I know that there's an iPhone and, a, and an Android app, but how there's not a blind app for for you know Lyft yeah. or Uber. How did he do that? And it makes people sort of inquisitive about it, which is you know kind of amazing. So so I think I think it still happens. I think you know with the iPhone, it's a you know people are really amazed by the fact that it does work, that it's integrated. You know, they can toggle it on and see it for themselves. I think Uber is an interesting example of an accidental accessibility app because as a blind, as a person who has ridden in many cars that belong to other people, when you're being asked to give directions or maybe just for safety, you want to know where you are. Maybe you're in a cab, maybe you're riding with a friend and they want to know where to turn. How are you going to do that before you had an app, whether it was Uber or a map, that could track your current position? And th- nobody made that as an accessibility feature. That was just something that phones could do and so they put it in apps yeah yeah it's i mean i used to have the um oh they've miniaturized this but humanware used to be victor um made the the original trekker mm-hmm. um was this thing but you had to wear it it was like this um it sort of was like a school science project thing. It was this like belt strap, I guess would be a better thing. They wore around your neck and the front of it had a cradle thing that was, would hold the little Palm pilot thingy. And then there was the GPS thing on the back of the neck and cables ran through cause it wasn't wireless. So there was cables that ran through the neck strap that would connect. And, and there was this whole getup thing that you had to put on and it would last for like two hours or three hours <laughs> But you had to like suit up, you know, and and if you were going for a walk or something, you know, you might do that. But if you were just wanting to jump in a cab and track your location, you couldn't. I mean, it was a lot of hassle for for a little reward. Plus, it might not work from within the car because the GPS receivers weren't that great. 
but you know, with the phone, it's just, it's there. Um, you know, the, Oh, you know what? The other thing I should have mentioned this, um, is cameras. The, 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 are you still recording? No. Yep. Yep. Call recorder is magically recording everything. All right. Yeah. Keep going. (laughs) The camera is another thing that I figured, well, that's just not going to ever be really accessible. I mean, we can sort of point it, take a picture and hope for the best. But like when my kids were growing up and they were little, um, we have my, you know, my wife takes a ton of pictures and she's not in most of them because, um, if I took pictures, usually she's blurry or the whole picture is blurry or it's a nice picture of my finger or, you know, it's, it's just terrible picture taking. And, uh, you know, of course, back when my youngest was, my oldest was young, you had to get film developed. So it would cost money if I took a really bad picture. And then at some point, I don't remember when, but Apple, used it would identify when faces were focused or when it when it saw faces and so you could know it would say one face detected or you know two faces or whatever and so you could know or be relatively safe in knowing that you were taking a a picture of the thing you were probably trying to take a picture of and and that kind of got me wondering hmm could this camera thing be made accessible which is a total visual medium and then we have apps like Microsoft Seeing AI which can do scene recognition. And um, I was in San Francisco and I was taking pictures and using the scene uh, recognition thingy and seeing AI. And we were driving over the um, Golden Gate Bridge and I was taking all these pictures and, you know, sometimes seeing AI, uh, seeing AI would say, you know, uh, a car in a dark tunnel or a car at night or uh a person's head or whatever it would say. And then one time I took this shot and it said bridge over water with the skyline in the background. It almost sounded poetic the way that it provided me the description of the, uh, of the, the scene that it recognized in the picture. And so I thought, well, that sounds kind of like what, I mean, we were going over the bridge at the time. It was sort of dark. And I thought that almost sounds beautiful. I'm going to just post this to Facebook and see what happens. And I did, and people liked it, and a couple people were like, that's a really beautiful picture. (laughs) You know, how did you do that? And I thought, that's really awesome. I mean, you know, it's not 100%, but, like, I can actually be a person that, you know, can post pictures because that's what everyone is doing. And, you know, maybe I'm not going to win any sort of award for photography, but Apple and, and then other companies, you know, have conspired to make a highly visual medium photography um a lot more accessible i think that's a great point to end on awesome yeah thank you so much pictures i really appreciate it yeah pictures are fun and that's the episode for this week. Remember, if for some reason you're not subscribed, you can go to relay.fm slash parallel. You can also go to that site to find more about Relay membership, which is a great deal for $5 a month. You should go do that. You can find out about it at the Parallel site, or you can go to relay.fm slash membership and learn all about your options. August is membership month. Do it now. And uh, if you do it now, you will hear a bonus members-only show from me on August 25th. But uh, whether you join or not, you can connect to me at Parallel Pods on Twitter, connect to me directly at Shelly on Twitter, and as always, relay.fm slash parallel. See you in two weeks.